Welcome to Season 4 of White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life. Let's discuss dreams, rituals, intuition, afterlife, angels, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. Season one featured interviews with some of the world's leading scientists researching consciousness. And season two and three built on that solid foundation by talking to authentic spiritual experts, authors, and practitioners. And the bold theme of this season is truth whatever that means. I hope every episode offers you much needed inspiration, meaning and comfort, and perhaps even a little joy in these challenging times. So, now the scene is set, allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores, to see what magic lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on White Shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. I'm excited today as my two guests capture much of the essence of White Shores in that they are ordinary but extraordinary people. Both aren't here to promote a book or a course or a product, but to simply talk about their vocation, which is to bring comfort and healing to people who are hurting through the work they do. During the pandemic, it was humble key workers that rightfully took centre stage. Interest in celebrities thankfully nosedived as the world turned upside down and we realised that the true heroes and heroines were people like my guests today, who work from the heart, not from their egos or pockets. This really sums up my two guests today. They are all heart. The first is a real-life Wonder Woman. Just listen to her incredible story and how she transformed her trauma, her personal trauma, into a healing gift for others. And the second guest is a superman who has dedicated his life to listening to others and making sure whoever they are, they feel heard, seen and validated. So sit back and enjoy these utterly authentic interviews as they are played one after the other. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end for some musical bliss as a gift for your mind, heart and soul. It's a piece of music called Dancing on the Waves and you'll have heard glimpses of it in each episode of White Shores. It's performed by Clan Ree, who composed an album called Lips of Angels after reading one of my angel books. My son and Royal College of Music scholar Robert, who is also producing this entire podcast, will ensure you now hear Dancing on the Waves in full. And so... Without further ado, let these two reassuring interviews begin. Stay tuned. If you would like to find out more about my books, warning, I'm a serial spiritual writer, as well as my features, media, mission and talks, please do visit 
www.theresachung.com and subscribe to my newsletter for updates as well as free gifts and incredible stories to your inbox. If you have any questions, insights or stories to share, please email me at my trusty angeltalk710 at aol.com email or message me via my author pages on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. I aim to reply to everyone in due course. Season 1 of White Chores can be found on the podcast page of my website and all seasons can be found wherever you download your podcasts. Be honoured and grateful if you could leave a review as it helps spread the word that spirit is real. Walking beside me today on White Shores is a true life superwoman. I'm absolutely thrilled that the delightful Kate Vidal, I hope I pronounced that right, Kate, I should have asked you in the beginning, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is joining me today. Now, I've known Kate, I would say five years now, goodness, time flies. Um, I was aware of her work and I sought her out because I really admired what she's doing, what what she does. And she'll explain what she does on, you know, during the course of our conversation. But she's also one of those people. And I know that you're going to sense this as you're listening, that just talking to her and spending time around her, you just feel a better person. I don't know how she does it, but she's one of these people. And we've all we've all met people like that, that you just feel uplifted and you don't really know why. It's something about their energy, who they are and what they do and what they say. Something profound. And I'm absolutely thrilled that she had the time to spend to, with me today to share that quality with you. OK, Kate, now that's a big build up. <laughs> don't let it me really down. Is. I was just thinking that. Gosh. Um, I don't know what to say at the end of that, Teresa. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. You, that's all. You're a coach, you're a mindfulness, you're a teacher, you're a healer. You are a superwoman. How do you manage to juggle all that? Because you're a mother too, aren't you? I am, yes. Tell me how you manage yeah, to juggle Yeah, luckily the children are getting older now, so it's it's much easier now that they're a little bit older. They're both at high school now. It was considerably harder when I had two younger children and they were hanging around my ankles all the time to be this mindfulness person who's so calm when you've got that (laughs) yeah I can I can still remember now vividly sitting on the sofa one day trying to create a course with my son building a train track around my ankles as I did (laughs) I bet that course was really exciting (laughs) It just, it all kind of just works though, doesn't it? It all just fits together and it happens the way it needs to happen. And I was just really grateful that I could be there for him and doing something, you know, to help everybody as well. Okay. So people who are listening and don't know who you are, um, aren't aware of your work, uh, you know, I, I of course have the privilege of knowing who you are and what you do. Can you please tell us your story? I mean, we all have stories. Tell us, just take all the time you need. Just tell us who you are, Kate, what you do. Okay, so, um, well, I suppose my story as an adult, if you like, um, I started out as a primary school teacher. I taught secondary a little bit as well. Um, Then I had my daughter and sort of knew at that point that something wasn't quite right. And when she was three, I was diagnosed with a really rare condition called acromegaly. Um, 
it basically means that I have a pituitary tumour which produces too much growth hormone. So people who are listening might be familiar with um, the character Jaws from the Bond films. Um, he was an acromegaly sufferer. Um, so basically it means that your face and your body changes, you know, and there are all sorts of side effects that come with that. But I was incredibly lucky that the world's leading surgeon at the time was based at Birmingham, near where I live. So in 2007, I had surgery. Um, at that point, I was told that I would never have any more children and that, you know, my life would be quite limited, that they couldn't guarantee the success of the surgery. So I started looking into things that I could do to keep myself well. Um, while I was looking into things, I discovered I was pregnant with my son. Um, so that was interesting. I'd just kind of come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be able to have any more children and here I was pregnant again. So it took me a little while to get my head around that. Um, and as soon as he was born, I started um, looking into all sorts of things. I did a spiritual care counselling course. I did all my Reiki training, started looking into crystals and, and really getting back into a world that I'd sort of dabbled in when I was a teenager. But then when I'd started doing my teach training, it was made really clear that that sort of thing wasn't acceptable in schools at that point. You know, there was no talk of meditation or anything even slightly spiritual in schools then. We weren't even allowed to mention Halloween. Um, so I started looking into all that sort of thing and just loved it. Um, my Reiki teacher said to me that I'd always had a natural healing ability and that she was going to just sort of amplify it. So that for me was really interesting. And I started to talk about friends and relatives about it. And they said, yeah, you know, we've always felt really calm when we're with you, you know, we always feel better when you give us a hug or, you know, so it was a real eye opener to me that I'd had this natural ability because I think I'd just sort of taken for granted that everybody could calm people down and make people feel more at ease with things. So then I started working as a therapist and over the years, my work's kind of evolved depending on what's going on in my life and I suppose just how I was feeling about things so I've you know I've done everything from hands-on Reiki treatments to life coaching courses now and you know I kind of dabble in all sorts of things so my business has two strands now I I work a lot with schools and teachers um creating online resources and doing training for them and then I have this other strand where I work primarily with women helping them to feel empowered and calm and and really sort of rediscover who they are. Because um, I think one of the things that I noticed really quickly after becoming a mom was that you suddenly become somebody's mom and almost lose your own identity for a while. So yeah. I really wanted to help moms, particularly whose children are getting older and, you know, they've spent so much time focusing on their children that they've forgotten what they enjoy doing and, and who they are, really. So... My work's kind of evolved over the years, but I love that because, you know, it, it always suits where I am and what I'm doing and what I need for my family. So it's just, it's been a real adventure. I I just love the way you talk because there's just such gratitude in your voice. And yet you were dealt a tough, tough hand, weren't you? 
with this condition. When you were a child growing up, was there any um, indication that this would manifest? Was it sudden? How, how? I'm just trying to get to that moment when you found out something wasn't quite right. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, actually. Um, there wasn't really any sign. When I was in my early 20s, um, I noticed that I was having some issues with my period. Um, sorry, men that are listening. I know that's a bit of a cringe for you. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had some irregular periods and that sort of thing. But apart from Well, they from have that, periods just in different ways, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but then it wasn't until I had my daughter and there was, there were like subtle changes. Um, I noticed that I was really tired. I noticed that I couldn't get shoes that fit anymore. Um, I had to go up a shoe size and I'd always had really narrow feet and suddenly I needed wide fit shoes. Um, and by the time I had my surgery, I'd actually gone up four or five shoe sizes. That um, must how did that feel like as a woman? Because, you know, women appearance sadly is still, you know, tantamount importance to us what it is to everyone. But I mean, how did that feel? Because you're a beautiful, beautiful lady. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's really strange because obviously, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm quite big built anyway. I'm nearly six foot tall, you know, so I've never been petite. Um but I got to the stage where the only shoes I could get were men's shoes. So I was walking around in, you know, Doc Martens and trainers and couldn't go anywhere where I needed sort of smart shoes. I mean, luckily, with having a small child, I wasn't going out very often anyway. But, um, you know, my rings didn't fit anymore. And I'd always had quite long, thin fingers. And suddenly, you know, my fingers were like sausages and my face changed shape. And I didn't realise until afterwards that I was I was trying to compensate for a lot of that. So I had my hair cut very short. I had bright blue highlights put in. And I realised after the event that I was kind of trying to distract people from looking at my face. It was, you know, look at this wild hair that I've got. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't did, look at my features. Did you um, succumb? Did depression sink in? Was there a despair at, at some point, moment? Do you know, I was really lucky. I think because my daughter was very, very young. I mean, she was only three when I had my surgery. So she was so young that I didn't have time to sort of wallow about things. I couldn't stay in bed if I wanted to. She was never a particularly good sleeper. So, you know, I was up with the lark every morning and just functioning, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. I wasn't really living. I was going through the motions. It's the get busy living or get busy dying, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of your things. And um, but it's also you, your your very resilient personality, I think, as well. I mean, you know, everybody would react differently to this. Was your life at danger at any point? Were you told this is a life threatening? Um, well, the condition itself is life limiting. Um, I mean, it's managed now. So I'm really fortunate that I'm within sort of normal boundaries with most of most of my hormone levels and things. Um, they did say to me that there was only a 30% chance that the surgery would make any difference. And what um, was the surgery on? What did they, they operate on? They, they had to go through my nose to my pituitary gland. Fortunately, the, the tumour was at the front of the gland, so they were able to access it through my nose. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to spend six weeks laid on my parents' sofa with a 
you know, a bandage under my nose because the, the wound would, you know, weep sometimes. And I couldn't see my daughter for six weeks because obviously she was at nursery. So if I'd got a cold, I had the surgery in November. So obviously, you know, there's lots of sniffles going around at that time of year. So if I'd got a cold and sneezed once, obviously that might have ruptured the the wound. And I, I would assume, is this genetic? Is that the cause? No, it isn't. Because that was the one thing that we checked. Because obviously with her being so young, I was mm. worried that she mm. might get it. And obviously we would, well, I personally would never have tried for my son if we'd thought there was a chance that they would get it. But no, they don't know what causes it, which is interesting. And it's most common apparently in men over the age of 60 while I was a 30-year-old woman. <laughs> so even now when I go to the hospital and see the consultant, they sort of... There's nearly always students in there. If I ask any questions, they almost look to me to see what's going to happen next, you know. Fascinating. And it it, it is rare, I would assume. Um, And is there a community of people? Do you have a a support community of other people going through it? What's out there for people? I had not heard of it, I'm ashamed to say. Well, I don't think many people have. And I think in a strange way, that was a blessing for me because... I'm the sort of person who finds it really difficult dealing with people looking at me pityingly. Mm. So I think if I'd had something that was better known, you know, like a cancer or something like that, and people had heard and they'd sort of looked at me sympathetically, I think I would have found it much more difficult to deal with. Um, Apparently for the situation that I'm in, um, you know, my age, my gender, the fact that I've gone on and had a child afterwards, apparently that makes me one in a million, which, you know. You are one in a million, you are. (laughs) My husband said, you need a t-shirt with that on, Kate. Well, that's why I loved, you know, I feel so blessed to to know you, first of all, and and, and to, 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 to shout about you from the rooftops and what you do now, because you are someone who has overcome and is always dealing, both dealing and overcome with something absolutely horrendous um and yet you do it with such humility and and almost gratitude like you're learning from the experience you really are a role model Kate. and i don't use that word lightly these days um for for young women and men of all ages actually um so please tell me now about your mindfulness teaching um, and how that works. Are you doing it online, obviously, because of the lockdown? Um, Just tell me a bit more about your your coaching, your teaching and what you're doing in schools. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I love my work in schools. I mean, obviously, because I was a teacher before, you know, I feel like I've got a teacher's heart. I think I'll always be a teacher, whether I'm working with schools or not. I'm really fortunate when when I had my illness and I was first diagnosed and had the surgery and things, I realized really quickly afterwards that my energy levels aren't what they used to be. So whether I'd wanted to or not, I wouldn't have been able to return to full-time teaching. So for me, it was a case of trying to find another path that fit and that was fulfilling and that I felt like I was helping people. And I realized really quickly after my daughter started school that the stress levels in schools were just so high. Mm. Um, And we're going back sort of nearly 10 years now, um, more than 10 years since she started. And I think, you know, you don't notice the stress levels in an environment when you're there every day. 
So when I stepped away for a few years and then went back into that environment, I realised just how intense it is in schools and just really wanted to find a way to help, you know, to support the staff. And, you know, at that point, I think Relax Kids was just starting up and but there wasn't really any other support for schools in that way. And obviously, because I'd worked as a teacher for years beforehand, you know, things like, you know, creating a lesson plan or, you know, coming up with with an idea for an activity was something that came really naturally to me. You know, I I don't have to work very hard, which sounds sounds a little bit arrogant, but it's something that I find enjoyable and really easy to come up with an idea to help children to learn something new. So I started making lesson plans that incorporated mindfulness activities, you know, breathing exercises and yoga poses and all sorts of different relaxation techniques and rolling them into a lesson plan that, you know, could be taught as a standalone. Um, so maybe it would be, you know, a trip to the farm or about Christmas or whatever it was, you know, that I was thinking about that day. And then I'd write a script for the teacher to read through, which would, as it went through, explain the different techniques. So the teachers didn't need any additional training and, you know, they could just literally print it off and, and walk into the classroom and pretty much teach it from the, you know, the couple of sides of paper. And, and this is this is your Karma Classrooms with Mojo, is that what you're talking that's about? That's right, yeah. Um, and, and just for people listening, this is gone all around the world it's a mindfulness and relaxation program for teachers to offer their students their pupils um, and Kate works closely with teachers to provide that training and online resources to create a calm and focused environment for their students to learn and school is supposed to be the best time of our lives but I know from my own experience and certainly my children growing up that it's also one of the most stressful and uncertain and anxious times and especially the way education's gone right now with this emphasis on exam 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 and um, I'm not sure if I've revealed this before but about 20-25 years ago when I left uni um, I was working in, in publishing as well, but I also um, qualified as a teacher and uh, did my PGCE. And I had a year or two teaching at City of London Boys School was where I did my um, it, my secondary school teaching experience. And then I went to Elaine's in Dulwich, UK. And already then it was like, there's no space for these children to breathe. Yeah. There's no allowance for the spirit um, and I actually got in actually in trouble, actually, because I already I felt that the children needed to move because I could have a double period with them, like my year 11s. And they'd be stuck for like two hours in their desk. So after a while, every 15 minutes, I would get them to get up and run around the room. And I remember the controversy this caused because the, <laughs> the noise. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought they've got to have a release. You know, this isn't right. Um, so I was I was very controversial teacher. I mean, if there are any of my former pupils listening, they they all remember me. I was absolutely bonkers. Um, but I just thought they've got to move these kids. This isn't right that they're that sedentary. You've got to release something. And I wish I'd had access to your resources then, because they also needed to learn how to breathe, how to calm. You know, if their friends picking on them or they're feeling anxious and they're frightened of a teacher, all these things that surface in school that literally we take the rest of our lives, don't we, to sort out? 
you know, if you, I mean, I wasn't picked for any sports teams. That still lives with me, Kate. You know, that's tough. You know, we, in the days, you know, when they used to have a, they'd pick people, you know, usually the, the, the most popular kid would then choose their team. Yeah. You know, and it was always between me and this other girl. <laughs> you know, we were both kind of so uncoordinated and so hopeless. <laughs> I was exactly the same because I had asthma as a child. So even the PE teacher didn't want me to play. <laughs> oh, my son's going to tell me off. He said, look, mum, I'm trying to edit your podcast professionally. Can you stop laughing? And it's like it's going to get people going to fall off their seats, give someone a heart attack out there. It's supposed to be calming. I'm so sorry, Robert, if you're editing this. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. It's because you're making me laugh, Kate. Sorry. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's cool. such a difficult thing, though, isn't it? And I think, for me, my my biggest belief is that the school system needs to change, actually. I think there needs to be a huge reform. But obviously, as one person with limited time and, and energy, I can't take on the whole education system. Oh, but, but you can, can add in five minutes a day that helps the children and the teachers to cope with that. And but you're doing it under. by simply having it out there. You are a force. And we'll talk about that in a minute. You are a force. You're, you're starting to make that change and the more people hear about what you're doing and it's gathering and growing isn't it the importance of it and I think the pandemic as never before are you right now because the pandemic because kids are at home offering these resources to parents to teach it to their children yeah I am and I actually have a couple of packs um to help families while the children are at home so there's you know a very simple powerpoint that goes through I can't remember how many, I think maybe 20 or 25 activities that they can do at home really simply with their children. And obviously, you know, we're all feeling it, aren't we? And the the wonderful thing I think about mindfulness and relaxation is that you don't need any level of expertise. Everybody can come at it at the same level. So you can go through it with your four-year-old, your 16-year-old, and be doing the exercises yourself and all get the same benefit from it, which is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, and we are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking to the to the converted people, you know, people who listen to this is a spiritual podcast. They yeah. know that we're not just mind and body. We are also spirit. And schools, you know, seem to want to ignore that a lot of the time. Um, there are some enlightened um, institutions which don't. But the great majority of education, it's mind. Then the body sort of like with the sports and that's it, isn't yeah. it? And that's that's not that's a half life, you know. That really is. You need to pay attention to the spirit. And isn't it wonderful? Like you know, with children, Disney movie Soul over Christmas. I don't know if you've seen that on Disney. Yeah, I did. That you know, even they're beginning to recognise that. Yeah, because this is directed at kids, isn't it? Young kids. Yeah. These concepts of an afterlife, of what's the meaning of life. You know, you're not just your profession. You're so much more than that. You're not that, you know, there's a spark in you. Can you believe, you know, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, this would be unheard of in a kind of a mainstream movie for children. And I think what you're doing, Kate, is all... I've heard some people say, you know, well, I don't know why they're doing it because children don't understand things like that. They do. I find it so frustrating because... I think people massively underestimate how much children understand and how much they're able to take in and and actually comprehend about the world. I think 
you know, we, we think that because they haven't necessarily got the language to explain what they're feeling and thinking, that they don't understand it. But actually, they do on a really basic level. They, they get it. They get all of it. Well, children get that there's a part of them that's invisible, unseen, and and which may have existed before they were born and after. I mean, a lot of children that I've interviewed or have have messaged me or whatever, there is that understanding. Um, And I know I certainly had that myself. But then as you get older, it gets knocked out of you. You know, it's not logical. It's not rational. Um, So I think children instinctively get that. And I always think actually of of J.K. Rowling, just to bring in the Harry Potter. She had this battle that she wrote this book, which dealt with topics like death, you know, the supernormal, everything. And it was rejected resoundingly by all the major publishers and the, the powers that be, right? And it only finally got signed by a very small publisher at the time. And then her agent took... Joe uh, J.K. Rowling to lunch and said, "Look, you're never going to make money out of this. You know, it's just <laughs> out of children's books because they didn't think that children could handle the magic and the mystery and and the, you know talking about death, depression, all that. Yeah, and of course they could. They ate it up because you know Harry Potter starts. It's not a spoiler with the death of parents. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know the world thought this would never work, and it was a struggle." I mean, it took several years. I mean, that book was out there, but not doing anything. And then it went to an auction in America and the rest is history. But I, I always find that really emphatic. We, we do underestimate children so much. I think interestingly as well, Teresa, I think the Harry Potter books actually had quite a big um, hand in introducing more spiritual concepts back into schools because it was such a phenomenon that they couldn't ignore it. You know, children who'd never wanted to read were wanting to read these exactly. quite heavy and books. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about witches and wizards and magic and things that we'd not been allowed to talk about. You know, I said at the beginning, didn't I, that, you know, when I first started teaching, we couldn't mention Halloween as a as a festival. Yep. And suddenly yep. we've got, you know, witches and wizards in a book that children are devouring, you know, literally waiting at the shops the night that they're released. I know. They couldn't ignore it. And and their parents too were reading it on a different level. That was the great yeah. thing. The great children's books is that it can be read by all ages. And that brings me nicely to how we originally connected, of course, because I reached out to you because you were doing Jedi training as part of your, you know, because you already instinctively knew that this is the way to grab children's attention is to tie it in with, with uh, you know, a movie franchise that's phenomenally popular, which Star Wars, of course, is. I always believe, I believe that the Star Wars movies are so popular and huge because of this concept of the Force, which in my, you know, I haven't actually watched all the Star Wars movies, but the concept of the Force just gripped me. It's spirituality. Um, It's mind training. It's mindfulness, isn't it? And I think that's the reason behind it. So I, I attempted, along with some other amazing people, to try and build a kind of a movement around the Force with varying degrees of success. But the important thing was that it, it um, was making a statement, look, how can we mainstream this? That's what I was trying to do. It wasn't actually about Star Wars. People misunderstood. It was mainstreaming yeah. and helping people who normally wouldn't engage with mindfulness and these concepts. You know, to, And it did work. And actually the NHS um, did some Jedi, a Jedi, Jedi, train like a Jedi, actually. Yeah. The following year, I don't know if you saw that. It was everywhere. They did it because they realised too that, I mean, what kid doesn't want to be a Jedi? <laughs> oh. 
and that's how I found you because I saw that oh my because I was looking around to ask people to help with this and I was so grateful because I, I saw that you were doing this you were talking about mindfulness the force being like a Jedi you were making mindfulness exciting and engaging and you know, I'm, I'm really disappointed that it, often it's presented in such a turgid or ridiculous or complicated way. It turns people yeah. off. You know, it's like when I you think... go in a health food shop and everybody looks really ill in there. Who's at the tail? <laughs> Come on. You know, if these if these nuts and seeds are so good, can you please look happier? Yeah, you know? <laughs> For me, I think, you know, I have my son to thank for the Star Wars stuff because he was obsessed when he was really quite young you know he hadn't even started school when he started to really get into Star Wars um and of course I'd you know fairly recently done all my you know Reiki and mindfulness work and I was just watching it thinking this is amazing you know the force is just energy it's you yes. know yes and you know, sort of watching that and thinking, you know, this is how we can really help kids and, and help them to connect with it. And it's so true what you say, you know, these are really simple concepts. These are not things that you need, you know, lofty qualifications to be able to do. I mean, I I was really blessed that my grandparents were incredibly mindful. You know, they they lived by the seasons. They made sure that they were physically active. They ate what was in you know, season at the time and they, you know, made sure that they took plenty of big deep breaths every morning to clear their lungs. They just knew this stuff. And I really believe that it's only as life's got more busy and technology's taken over more and we have less time that we've needed to relearn this as a thing rather than just as the way that we live. Absolutely. Um and I'm as I say, beyond grateful that you are doing it. You are a force. You've also contributed to a book called Women of Spirit, I believe. Yeah. Telling your story. So if anyone wants to check that out, please do. And before I ask you the, the usual questions that I, I terrorise my guests with at the end of each episode, um, can you please now say where people can find out about you, how they can download and, and, and sign up to your materials? Um, where's the Kate portal? Okay, well, I've got two websites. So my work with schools is at karmaclassrooms.co.uk. That's karma as in calm, not as in the thing. That, the K one. Back, yeah, <laughs> so, so it's calm, calm with a C. C. Um, and then everything else you can access through um, katebedo.com. And how do you spell that? Would you mind spelling it's, it? It's um, Kate, K-A-T-E-B-E-D-D-O-W. So I said Bedow, that's wrong, isn't it? In the beginning when I introduced you, it's Bedo. Yeah, it's Bedo, yeah. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I should know that. I used um, to be a Smith. It was so much easier then. I just... <laughs> Thank you so much. So now I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. So it's, again, a way for people to get to know you better. I'm trying to create an orchestra because I've had some phenomenal guests yourself included on on white shores and i'm so honored and i'm going to and this this um uh, podcast also celebrates the beauty and calming and uniting power of music great music to unite the creative and logical part of your brain so if you could be a musical i'm going to try to create an orchestra with my guests basically okay. so if you could be a musical instrument what would you be and why well i used to play the flute actually I haven't had a flute yet. That's brilliant. I've got my um, woodwind. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just, I love that haunting, gentle, 
you know, very sort of easy sound of the flute. James Galway, was he a, an amazing flautist? Yeah, he was. Yeah. If you, I oh, remember yeah. my dad bought me a James Galway LP when I was about 12. Oh, highly to recommend. To, to inspire me. So if you want inspiring music, that's, I highly, highly recommend that. And then finally, because it's called White Shores after my love of the Lord of the Rings, White Shores being the undying lands, the place the elves and spirits go. Is there a movie, apart from Soul, we've just already mentioned that, so you can't say that, out there. It doesn't matter how old-fashioned, how long ago, whether it's a documentary, whether it's amateur professional, or any movie that people could check out and say, well, Kate recommended this because it's inspiring, motivating, has a spiritual message. Is that because I think there are underlying spiritual messages in movies and that's why I was promoting, you know, the Star Wars yeah. become the force. Um is there any, you know, movie another movie that you can recommend so that people can go away with a a, a recommendation? You know, there's, there's so many, but the I think the book and film that probably had the biggest impact on me was Eat, Pray, Love, which I was introduced to at just the right time. And it it empowered me to remember that I was a person as well as a mother and a wife. Absolutely. Yes. You know, yeah. it, it gave me permission to do things that I wanted to do that didn't impact on somebody else. You know, and I, I think that, you know, the idea of, you know, I'm going to go to Italy because I want to. Yeah. You know, and I want to eat the food was just it was just a message that I needed to hear at the right time. And I know it's helped so many other women as well. It has. And it's also remembering that you can be an I as well as a we. Yes. Yeah. And I think I think that's a lovely point to end it, Kate. Thank you from my heart for walking beside me today. And please do check out this amazing, inspiring lady. I promise you, you won't regret it. Thank you, Teresa. I do hope you enjoyed listening to Wonder Woman Kate and that you check her out. I also hope you'll be touched by this next interview coming up now with a wonderful Superman. Walking beside me today on White Shores is a fully accredited counsellor and expert in mental health and bereavement. He's also written an amazing book for anyone who has suffered the trauma of losing a beloved pet called Pet Loss. And most of the interview is going to focus on that, but we'll also talk about a few other things, as you know, I love to do with my guests. His name is Robin Gray, and I'm absolutely privileged that he had the time today to talk to me. Hello, Robin. Hello, Teresa. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm excited because my listeners know how much I love animals, and you've written a book to help cope with one of the biggest hurts ever, if you... Uh, love an animal and invite them into your life and then you have to say goodbye so let's talk about that in a minute but first of all for people who are new to you who don't know about your work can you tell us a little about who you are why you do the work you do um yeah hi well my name's uh, robin as i say and i've been interested in um therapeutic work of various kinds for many years now i started off doing music um as a degree and I actually decided that I wanted to see whether music would work well with people with disabilities. And fortunately, where I did my training, uh, it was possible to do a project on music and communication for adults with learning disabilities. Um, and I specialised that in for my degree. And moving to London, 
I managed to get a job working with um, adults with learning disabilities using music uh, as a form of communication. And I did that for about 10 years. And it really, really underlined to me the, the power of communication and how music can be a really, really good part of that. We used to do all sorts of things, gentle songs, um, instrumental things, uh, shows, all sorts of things. But I was really, really struck over the 10 years that I did it, how much music can be very, very powerful medium of communication. Um, it helps people to to build their confidence and self-esteem. It helps language. It helps attention. It was just really, really good. And I loved that work. It was really lovely. Thank you. I'm really interested. I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying about music. I, I do believe it's the language that angels speak. Um, but, um, and I talk about, about that a lot on my podcast. But I'm really interested with all my guests, these people who are going out in the world, helping and healing and giving. Where did that motivation come from? What made you someone who wanted to be a giver rather than a taker, which, you know, the takers seem to be overtaking the world at the moment in some ways. What, where has this impulse come from? I know you once said to me, because we do have a bit of history, I'll talk about that in a minute, we know each other, having written a book together many years ago. Yeah. But where, I know you had really difficult medical issues when you were growing up as a child, and quite a few of my guests actually had suffered physical trauma or, or something in childhood. Do you think your desire to help others because you went through a lot yourself came from that? Um, the more I think about it, the more I recognise that. Um, I had um, a childhood congenital condition, which meant that I had spent quite a lot of time in hospital and my balance was very bad. And um, I spent quite a lot of time um, having to be a little bit careful of going out and none of the rough and tumble of usual childhood. Uh, when I was very little, I think I really, really... Um, understood how important it is just to take care to be to be able to listen to um to empathize with other people and you know my parents were really really good at that but when I spent time growing up I spent quite a lot of time going to hospitals as a child and and, and getting to know other children who were in difficult situations like this and I think it just made me realize that there's more to life than just doing things and 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 um, getting on with hobbies and that kind of thing. I really started to understand that if you were nice to people, they would be nice to you. And and the attachment and bond which came from that was really really important. So when I went to do music uh, degree uh, at college, that's where I thought, well, how can I use my music? How can I make a bond with people who are less able than myself? So that's where the music therapy link came in. I'm not a music therapist, but I did a lot of music and communication. Uh, the power of sound is really, really important. And I remember as a child, music was really, really important to me as well. Absolutely. It's interesting because uh, on this podcast, I've had a lot of scientists on and people who oh. research intuitives and psychics and healers. And there's a study actually that the Windbridge Institute in the States is conducting at the moment to try and identify traits of psychics and healers. Uh -huh. And one of those, those is 
early childhood trauma of some sort, be it physical or emotional, being a common theme in people who actually go out into the world to become psychics. I'm not saying I know you don't claim to be a psychic, Robin, but no, in I'm... some ways I feel that counsellors, they don't realise it. They are psychics by another name because you are healing, giving intuitive understanding of other people. You may not realise it, but you're tapping into that intuition which you could call psychic. I mean, you have to sense with your clients where to go with the conversation. So I find that really interesting that you you have one of the traits. <laughs> That's nice of you to say so. Well, there's three or four traits. One of another one is being left-handed. Another one is is being gay, lesbian, or bi. Um, there are all sorts of traits which which this study which is now you know had thousands. They've looked at thousands of healers, psychics, mediums to see what traits they are and also running in the family like is there anyone in your family who was a counsellor or who wanted to help or heal not really but when you were talking about it I did think about the nature of intuition um which I think is is an invitation to respond to people and I did feel when I was doing the work that I was doing with um, music and communication it relied a lot on intuition um, yeah. You could just tell when somebody was going to respond to music. Their language might be very, very limited, but the response to music was just really, really important. And I, I developed, you know, just through the work, I developed lots and lots of different individual relationships with people. And you would know that a certain type of music would really appeal to them and and that kind of thing. And I think it's really, really important to to rely on the intuition that you connect with with other people. You know when something's going to work. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Um, and you, you've also got your own private practice now. You've worked with the NHS over here in the UK. You've had decades of experience now, haven't you, working with people, you know, who are struggling to cope mentally and emotionally in their lives. Um, how have you noticed due to COVID and what happened to the world in 2020, did you notice an increase in of interest in the work you do? Um, how, 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 has it, how has it impacted your work as a counsellor? Have you noticed an increase? Well, I think, I think what's happened is that there's been difficulties in many ways in accessing face-to-face talking therapy, but how the therapeutic community has responded to that has been that there's been much more phone work, there's much much more online work. And I suppose what, what 2020 and the pandemic has shown people is that it may be difficult to access face-to-face work, but the need for therapeutic connection is even more important. Absolutely. And as a counsellor, how do you feel about, you know, the do you prefer the in-person? How are you adjusting to this Zoom world we live in now? Are you... Do you feel that it helps your clients in the same way? Are you how are you adjusting? Well, I suppose I'm I'm just adjusting to the practicalities of the situation. Ideally, I prefer to work face to face because you get to know the person and you mm. see the person that you get a sense of the person in front of you as well as what they say. Um, I think I have adapted. Um, not particularly happy about it, but I think a lot of counsellors are in this position now. You know, we've had to adapt to a medium of connecting and as the world is becoming much more around um social media and that kind of thing there are different uh, platforms that you can go 
the only thing which I would say, as a professional counsellor, it has to be within, if you're setting yourself up as a counsellor or a psychotherapist, it has to be within regulated frameworks. So, for mm. example, you have to be um, you have to be seen as being ethical, um, and all counsellors would have a code of ethics that they work to to ensure that people are getting the right level of um, contact and mm. also professional stance that they are taking. Hello, sorry, I think you dropped out a bit there. Um, I, I think I got the sense of what you're saying, but when I listen back, I'll make sure I do. Do Robin, okay. thank you. Um, but thank you for that. Um, one question I've got before we go to the main part of this this interview, mm. which is about pet loss, which is a huge issue. Mm. Um, I know from my readers and listeners that it is. Um, as a counsellor, I've always been curious because a counsellor, you 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 get this rapport with a client. How mm. do you manage to keep the boundary? And I would find I've always want I've been curious about becoming a counsellor in my life, but then I realised I would find it so hard to cut off. How do you do that when you talk to someone and they're going through turmoil? They have no one else really that they feel they can talk to. That's why they're talking to you. Well, How do you do? You have practices. What techniques do you use to be able to cut off? I guess I could ask this for doctors as well and healthcare workers. Anyone really dealing with trauma on a daily basis? Um, well, I would say the first thing is that uh, one keeps um, an ethical framework around the work that one is doing so one has to know where the boundaries are obviously if you're working with somebody there's no personal disclosure and the work has to be within a safe contained therapeutic boundary which means that you know whatever the person says is safe and it's confidential so they have to feel that they're what they're saying is safe and confidential and as a therapist you have to be attuned to what the other person is saying. Um, and that means that you also have to be attuned to what you know about yourself. So you can't start talking about your own stuff in your, your own material, should I say, in the counselling session. It's all about the client. Mm. But if they say something which triggers something in you, you have to know where you're coming from. So counsellors and therapists have to have a lot of personal therapy themselves so that we know where we're coming from, um, so that we're not triggered in sessions. And therefore, you can really focus on what the client is saying. Mm. I mean, I've known you for a while now, as I said earlier, and uh, you are one of the kindest, most empathetic people I know, Robin. Oh, thank you. Close to sainthood, I would say. Um, and that, what I was trying to get at with that question was, you obviously must care about your clients how do you as a caring person which I know you are cut off you know when you've had ended a call how do you then go back to your normal life you know because you live a busy active normal life outside your how do you cut off what technique do you use to do that um well I would first of all I would say as I said earlier there are straight uh, there are straightforward boundaries in the session um, so you know that the session starts uh, at one time and then 50 minutes or an hour later it will finish. So the work itself is contained within the boundaries of that session. Um, obviously, outside of that, um, you have some time to process, to think through what, what's been said in the session for that client. But it's about making it contained within that 50 minutes or hour. Um, 
and you know there are there are professional things in place for counselling uh, we have to go for supervision where we talk about what's happening with our clients so that we look after ourselves as well as the clients being there for the clients so you're in counselling and therapy constantly as well not always in counselling or therapy ourselves, but we have to attend supervision, which is a process where you talk through what's been happening between you and the client in the clinical relevance of the session. Well, that, that's well. I just want to thank you for for the work you do, uh, people like you. As I said, in my mind, I know you'll probably disagree, but I think you, in times of old, you would have been the village shamans and healers and medicine men or women <laughs> you know offering guidance <laughs> but anyway let, let's now talk about pet loss um i am obsessed with my little dog i got a dog about five yeah. years ago um oh, and i'm yeah. sure my listeners are fed up of hearing about my little arnold who is my best friend i absolutely adore him and i cannot right. imagine a time when he's not in my life I, it's interesting because I was never really a dog person I, I I love I love cats I was I had a, a cat when I was growing up for about 19 years actually oh, yeah. and I absolutely loved that cat too and was devastated when she passed um but this this um my doggy is is you know I'm much more mature now and um I I get letters from my readers or messages on my socials about the devastation some heartbreaking oh. ones about Please, can you tell us about your very important book? I don't think there are many books written about this issue um, because it is a kind of a bereavement that people don't class as a bereavement. Whether it's a dog, a cat, a horse, a rabbit, a mouse, a gerbil, a spider, um, you know, when you have this kind of a bond with a creature and then, you know, their lifespan's so short, please tell us how to cope with that, to deal with that, and why you wrote this book. Because you're not you don't own a pet yourself, do you? Not at the moment, no. Not um, you, you did. Anyway, I'll let you talk. I'm no. talking way too much. Please tell us all about pet loss, um, what people can expect in the book, and, and just, just give us your wisdom, Robin, please, because I'll okay. be listening very keenly. All right, thank <laughs> you. Um, well, I as you know, Teresa, I, I wrote uh, Coping with Pet Loss, um, a few years ago now, but it's still very, very relevant. Um, it covers what happens when people lose pets. Um, and as you know, I mean, pet loss can happen when we're going through very, very difficult life transitions. So you may be coming to the end of a relationship. Uh, you may have children which have just left home. You may have had some recent bereavements yourself. However, if you lose a pet at the same time, that can really, really exaggerate the, the grief that you're going through. I mean, p- pets give us a, um, a sense of our own identity. You know, when people, when you're going out and you take your dog for a walk, um, they recognise you not only because of yourself, but because of your dog. They talk to the dog as well as talking to you. Yeah, I'm um, sorry, I'm going to interrupt there. I go on dog walks and I actually know the names of people's dogs, but I don't know their name. Uh, okay, <laughs> and they, so, they say hello you know to my I, dog they don't know who I am <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I'm saying it gives you a sense of connection with other people mm. that you see out and about and and you know people have communities particularly with dogs uh where they are um seeing other dog walkers and stuff like that we also know people who've got cats um if you know a cat you know that the person's going to be caring for that that cat when they get home every time you go and visit a friend 
when it's not uh, when the restrictions aren't there because of COVID, uh, you'll know that that cat is going to be there when you go and see the person. So it's it's another link with the person. Um, and I wrote the book really because the more clients I was working with, the more I came across people who had recently or um, yeah, recently gone through some pet bereavement. I had a few specific clients who were going through pet bereavement and it really, really is an unrecognized loss. And so people felt that they were being misunderstood because um, the extent of the loss from their pets wasn't even recognized by people. Mm. Um, and so tell us what you can, what the, each chapter in the book, could you just talk us through the book and I mean, is it a, is it client stories? Um, is there a toolkit for how to deal with this awful moment when you lose a beloved pet? Um, well, what I tried to do in, in the book was I tried to make it as practical as possible. Good. At the specific areas that um, people find particularly difficult. I tried to outline the, um, the link which people have with pets, the human-animal bond, for example, uh, talking about attachment and how we get attached to pets um, and the meaning for, for them in our lives. Um, I'd, I've gone through another chapter where I talk about the impact on you having lost a pet. And some of the some of the misunderstandings which happen. So people people who think that people are going to be sympathetic to you, it's not always the case. You know, people can minimise the loss which people have around their pets. Um, and then I talk about the impact of pet loss on children, um, which can be a, a major major thing. If you lose a family pet, mm. it's it's very hard for children to understand why their pet is at the end of life and they get very, very worried and very, very um, distressed by that. It's an invitation really for parents to approach it in a way where it's the beginning of understanding loss. Mm. Um, so that's very, very important. And I suppose I'm trying to I'm trying to just make it more explainable so that mm. people feel as if it becomes not exactly a normal part of life, but it, it normalizes grief. Yeah. Um, I also talk in the book about what happens when pets go missing, because that's unfortunately one of the things which can happen if you have a pet. If it suddenly goes missing, that can be a very traumatic loss. It is. Um, um, and it's interesting what you said about the beginning about getting a pet at times in your life where um, things are tough. I mean, I know certainly when my children were getting too old for hugs and, uh, you know, really wanting to be their own person. Uh-huh. That's five years ago because my children are now in their early 20s. That's sure. when Arnie came center stage. You know, it's okay, almost like yeah. I got yeah. another baby. So I didn't I hadn't thought about it that way. So thank you for that. But also, of course, during COVID, pet ownership shot up because a lot of people were on their own. I wonder what you think about that. A lot of people, puppies, for example, are buying puppies and and everything just for that companionship. Well, that's it. I think, you know, the social isolation which we've felt through COVID has led to a lot of people thinking, how can I actually find something or find, find a pet that I can look after um, as a way of comforting myself almost? I know that yeah. people buy pets because they want to look after the pet, but it's a mutual process. 
Oh, it is. My dog looks after me completely. Some of the best conversations I have with with him as well. Why do you think it's a massive self-esteem boost as well, having a pet? Because whatever you feel like, whatever you look like, you get this wave of unconditional love, as long as you just see to their basic needs. Well, I think having a pet can be very nurturing. Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, we, we put a lot of responsibility around um looking after a pet making sure that it's uh that it's okay you know making sure that it's it's comfortable and that it gets exercise and that it's loved and it's warm what are the wonderful things about having a pet is that they can give you an unconditional love back so we project a lot of stuff that we um feel onto pets we show them love we show them affection all of that kind of thing and you get it back you get Mm. it back in bucket loads you know, where you have a cat who curls up next to you or a, mm. a dog that really is kind of really, really responsive to how you are. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, we, we obviously we carry a responsibility to care for pets very well, but it's really important that we honour those relationships. So they're very empathetic, aren't they, aren't they as well, pets? Yeah, it's almost they're like they're na- natural empaths. Yes, absolutely. And it encourages our um, empathy as well, because sometimes we can be very cross or very uh, upset or very depressed. But actually finding finding some empathy for a pet around you can can release all sorts of um, uh, emotions which actually minimize stress, calm us down if we're feeling a bit frustrated or angry and it can centre us really, really well around pets. Well, you're right. That's why I guess cats and dogs are used in hospitals and hospices, aren't they, as oh, part of the healing? They, they often do. And I was going to say about pet loss in, in older people, um, mm. sometimes when people finish work and they retire or they're at home for long periods of time for whatever reason, it's really, really therapeutic to have a pet. Um, yes. You know, because... Uh, it gives people a function it gives them something to focus on it's companionship for people that live on their own it's really really important Uh, okay i'm going to get to the nitty-gritty now because every almost every week barely a week goes by when i don't get some kind of heartbreaking letter from people of all ages and stages of life saying i've lost my pet um first typically they ask me a lot because obviously i'm an you know, I write about the paranormal. A lot of believe people sure. believe that their pets live on in spirit. You know, and yeah. I I believe they do. That's just a personal belief. But also, they just say that they feel utterly depressed. Especially, um, you know, about two days ago, I got a letter from a lady called Lily, actually, and she um, it was heartbreaking, and that she said she just didn't want to go out. She just every time she went out, she mm. wanted to cry because her little doggy wasn't with her, um, and it it made me cry reading it and I then feel blessed that they've written to me and honored but also in the awesome what what could I say to make this person feel better sometimes do I suggest getting another pet because that's something also because obviously a pet is irreplaceable Mm. and the tendency is is well get another one that's what a lot of people say um, but anyone who's built a loving bond over 15 years say with a pet will know that pet has a personality and you can't, you know, you may get another pet and they'll be totally different. Um, well, so should I, think, I suggest going, getting a dog? You know, there's so many, you know, ch- centres where dogs need homes. What, 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 what would be the best thing to say at that point? 
Well, I think it's a it's a different situation for each individual. I think it has to be approached with a degree of care. In terms of the client you were talking, or the the lady you were talking about there, Lily, maybe she, you know, it's about making sure she doesn't socially isolate herself too much. Uh, I know it's very very hard to um, to go out if you've got the routine of going with a pet and then the pet isn't there with you, but if it's important that she keeps on going out, connecting with other people, because that's going to be very valuable in, in, in helping her with her depression feelings. Obviously, if the depression goes on, it's a good idea for her to maybe have a chat with her GP, mm. um, because sometimes pet loss can, can trigger all sorts of other deeper depressions. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. Um, in terms of getting another pet, uh, there's different approaches to it. Some people say you should have a, a good period of time in between one pet and the other so that you can mourn the loss before you get another. Yes. Uh, so some people wait. Uh, some people don't want the responsibility for a while. Um, and some people, they really feel the loss and the loneliness comes with the loss. So yeah. if you feel that your loneliness is becoming a bit overwhelming, maybe it's an idea to think about getting another pet. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I always say to people, remember that the the pet that you've lost, in a way that pet has to be mourned first before you welcome it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then in time, when you feel ready... I think the spirit of that pet can live on through another pet, just as with humans, in a way. I disagree on that. I think that each pet has its own spirit. And yes. so one yes. has to recognise the, the spirit of the, the pet who's just... Uh, Utterly unique, that. yeah. And when and it's a new pet, one has to have a, a new bond, a new relationship. It's a new beginning. Um and it's really important for people to do the mourning of the previous pet first, if possible. Well, thank you for that good advice, Robin, because sometimes I'm tempted because I want people to feel better to say, well, just go and adopt another because every puppy's gorgeous or every kitten or yeah. rabbit or whatever. And uh, so thank you. So I'll, I'll be mindful of that. And thank you again for writing this amazing book. And can you tell people where they can get it um is it published by sheldon because i believe sheldon's no has been is owned by another company now uh, taken over, they've been taken over by hatchet uh, hatchet is um, taking um, over all i sheldon they recently took over lawrence king i published with them as well okay um yeah. and my upcoming book the truth about angels actually is also published by yellow kite who is owned by hatchet it seems right. like Hasha is taking over the world in publishing <laughs> at the moment. All these independents, yeah. that's a sign of the times, yeah. isn't it? But actually, the distribution it will get now through Hachette. Well, is, yes, that's um, very positive. I think it's going to come to a wider audience. Massively, course, massively. It's also, sad in a way that because Sheldon was, it was a uniquely Christian, wasn't it, um, uh, publisher? Oh, yes, sorry, like, I understand, yes. Yes, um, but it kind of broadened out now to be more inclusive, but... To, to be bought by Hachette means that you are now part of one of the it's a second or third biggest publisher in the world, isn't it? Well, that's going to be an advantage, I hope. Uh, of Absolutely. course, you can, you can also um, buy it on Amazon. Amazon.co.uk. Amazon and it's called Pet Loss. What's the subtitle? Uh, the, the actual title is Coping with Pet Loss. Oh, sorry. I called it Pet Loss. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's by Sheldon Press. Yes. 
Uh, there's no specific subtitle. It's just Coping with Pet Loss. Yes. And it's Robin Gray, G-R-E-Y, and Sheldon Press. Sheldon and Press. Hachette, sorry. Yes, that's my mistake. Sorry. Hachette Press. Well, well done. That's amazing. Um, so I hope I hope that, um, you know, everyone who's uh, suffering at the moment because they've lost a pet and it's something you know don't feel ridiculous if you're feeling low because you miss your your pet it is it is a form of grief as robin has so carefully articulated it needs to be taken seriously so i'm really grateful for you sharing your time today robin just a couple of questions before you go Mm -hmm. um i like to ask every guest first of all maybe a movie recommendation or a documentary or something people can watch or something that has inspired you it doesn't have to be about pet loss or anything just something that really you feel has a, a um, an inspiring maybe spiritual message because I like people to listen to this podcast and then go away and have a recommendation of some sort is there anything that you feel is an inspiring watch I can't think of any specific film but I do think it's important you could have said to... Lassie <laughs> Well, yes, if you if you're looking that far back, yeah, <laughs> Black Beauty. <laughs> there are quite a few films which actually have pets as part of them. Yes. In terms of um, being showing the the pet bond, but I think I, I on a wider scale. Can I, can I just think... mention a couple of those? So Marley and Me. I think you're thinking the Jennifer Aniston one. Oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And Turner um, and Hooch with Tom Hanks. Yes, I mean I think yes. on a wider on a wider level that there's a number of films which come out uh, often which which focus on loss in a more meaningful way than we used to do. So, okay. for example, loss isn't just about grief; it's a it's a wider spectrum of change and looking at um, relationships and how we cope with separation and the anxiety which come from that. I think we can read a lot into a lot of modern films now which is about the importance of recognising loss and change. Is there any one you can recommend in particular or something that's really spoken to you, uh, relevant to your work? I'm afraid, no. It's <laughs> it for yourself. You're too, way too busy to be watching television. I miss the trouble with me. <laughs> also, with the pandemic, obviously, yeah. cinemas have been out of action for some time. So I think, you know, when things when things get a little bit more back to normal, try and find a, a, a film which talks about change, talks about loss in a way which creates some meaning as well as grief. Because if you can find that deeper meaning behind the grief, that is the way sure. the way forward, isn't it? So thank you for that. And the reason I do talk about movies and stuff is I say this podcast is called White Shores, which is uh-huh. a, out of my respect for Lord of the Rings and some of the spiritual themes in there, because White Shores is the undying lands where the spirits of people, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the characters go when they, they cross over, the good characters anyway. Um, and then the final question Again, I I love music and I, I feel it's very healing because when you listen to music, the creative and logical parts of your brain unite and hopefully bring some inner peace. Um, if you could be a musical instrument, Robin, because I'm trying yeah. to create an orchestra with my guests, you see, it's interesting. Okay. I'm writing down what each one of them says. For season four, anyway, I've asked this daft question. Uh-huh. But if you could be a musical instrument, what would it be and why? Um, well, I've got no uh, hesitation in saying it would be the cello. Uh, wow. Because the cello is such an expressive instrument. 
um, the way that it sounds, the sonority, the kind of timbre of the the sound and the the way that one just oh I don't know cello music is just so lovely and also many many years ago I used to learn the cello and what I was always impressed with was the way that it would the our body when sitting down would just go around the cello so that it's almost like quite a nurtured nurtured instrument in itself so, so we would fit around the cello, you know, you'd be sitting there and the cello would go between your legs and then you'd have your arms around the, the, the top of it and it would just sort of envelop, we would envelop the cello, but in a way I always used to like to think that the cello enveloped us as well with the sound, the beautiful sound that it came, that came oh, from it. What a creative way of thinking about it. And actually, of course, that makes sense because you actually are one of those rare people. You can um, play by ear, can't you? Um, uh, yes, I can. How does that feel like? I mean, I've always been in awe of that. It's like people who can suddenly just draw a face or, and yet you, if somebody asked you for a tune, you could go to a piano or a keyboard and you could kind of play it. How, how does that process work? Do you, what happens? I, I think it's a form of memory, um, but I've never really, I know I went to music college and everything, but I never really studied why that would happen. I just kind of did it. Um, some people can play by ear, some people can't. But it was very useful. When I used to do um, work with um, people with disabilities, it was quite useful because if they wanted a, a certain tune in a certain key, it wouldn't really matter whether I had the music in front of me, I would just play it. You know, it's one of those one of those gifts that sometimes we're just given. Oh, I'm in awe of that. Well, you're truly gifted. Touched by angels, I think, Robin. Oh, uh, thank you so good. much. And, I, and also, is there is there any way people can contact you? Do you have a, a website or an um, email yes, address? A website which is uh, all lowercase robingraycounselling.co.uk. And that's grey with an E. Grey with an E and Robin with an I. R-O-B-I-N-G-R-E-Y counselling. Dot co, dot dot co, dot com. Okay, and you've got an email address there. Great, thank you so much, Robin. Okay. <laughs> and on that um, high musical note, I'll say thank you um, for all that you are and do. Thank you very much. Thank you from my heart for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind and compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help the world heal. Thank you to Clan Ree for the blissful episode music and do check out the show notes for all details about this episode and my contact details. I'm going to say goodbye for now with a musical or literary offering, a piece of heaven for you to take away and store in your heart as you return refreshed to your one precious life. Until we meet again on these white shores, Keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude. <laughs>